This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show. I am your host, Matthew Rushing, and not here with me this week is Dan Gunther. Dan is on a secret special Section 31 assignment. I can't tell you where he is, obviously, or I'd have to kill you. And so that means that we're going to have a Very, very short news segment this week. In fact, not really going to cover any news at all because there's so much news that's come out recently. We've got some book covers to judge and things like that. I really can't do it justice without Dan. I just don't feel that it would be right for me to talk about without him being here um, and to bounce those ideas off. And we've even got some comics to review as well. So it's going to be a great episode next week for that in news. I hope you'll join us there. And this week, though, I didn't want you to miss Literary Treks and have a great interview with Tony Daniel, the author, whose newest book has just come out, that's Savage Trade. So I'm really excited to be able to still bring you that, even though Dan is away on his secret mission. Well, I am really excited for the listeners this week. Um, Guys, we have something really special for you. I love when we get to do interviews, and Savage Trade has come out, uh, the latest TOS book from this year, and I'm really excited that uh, Tony Daniel is here to talk about that with us. Tony, it's, it's great to have you back here on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, um, last time, you know, your your last book was following up uh, an episode of the original series, and uh, Savage Trade does that as well. Tell me a little bit um, here about the genesis and for you of Savage Trade. Where did this idea come from? Well, um, the the first one was was because I love the Horta, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. That one that was called Devil's Bargain. Yeah, great work with the Horta. So much fun to see that race back. And so I just I figured I had luck with silicon creatures. <laughs> I was, yeah, <laughs> I was gonna. I told somebody I wanted to be invited as guest of honor to silicon. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We can. I, I'm surprised we haven't started that up yet. Well, I've always liked the. Uh, I like that episode for. I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. Mm-hmm. 
We don't even, I, yeah, I guess we learned their name in the episode. We don't learn the, the name of the, uh, of our host, the rock creature, but I wanted to bring him back as well. It, it's a, even to talk about the book at all is, it's going to have to have a minor spoiler. Definitely. We will go ahead and, and let the listeners know this is your spoiler warning. If you haven't read Savage Trade, which hopefully you have by now, we are going to talk about the book and, and we're going to go in depth in it. So just consider this your spoiler warning. And if you do continue, that's not Tony I's fault. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not a um, huge spoiler. I mean, I mean you can't talk. The, the book has the Escalbians in it, but it's mm-hmm. not until yep. you know about 20 pages in that it's revealed they're part of the the story, but you can't really talk about anything else about the story unless you you talk about that. I right. Think. Well, dealing with the Excalbians again, you know, and and trying to build off of what had happened in TOS, um, what was that like? Really fleshing out that race. Well, I mean, it was. They're so sort of loathsome in that episode, and I wanted to what, what I wanted to find their motivation. You know, what would cause right. a species to want to do that to others? Um, and could it really be that they didn't understand the difference between good and evil and, and such things? That you know, a lot of the the silliness that some people have seen in that episode, I wanted to give an explanation for to uh, mm-hmm. to try to make it make sense. Um, so I was, and, and I just. I really like uh, writing species who are completely and utterly alien um, mm-hmm. to to human ways of thinking. That, that it's fun because you can you have a blank slate in a way that I mean you don't have to your your creation of their characters can be wildly weird. In other words, well, and when you're watching the original series or honestly, really any of the Star Trek shows. You know, we're very limited on what we can do with aliens um, and, and just how alien they can get. Uh, and I think you really start to push the boundaries when you got to uh, Voyager and we did Species 8472, where it's just something that is, is, is there's no humanoid about it, you know. Um, but that's one I think the, the best parts of, of the literature is that we can create things that are truly alien that you know we would think of that we might truly run into in a spacefaring you know show yeah and you can in a book you don't have you're not limited by the fact that you have to have humans acting <laughs> parts of the alien right exactly um, the uh, but speaking of voyager um my best friend um was a longtime staff writer on on voyager michael taylor and he wrote some great, oh, yeah. uh, okay. great voyagers. I think with it. he had one, you know, the Bride of Chaotica. I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. That's that, a classic. Um, has some very odd uh, aliens behind it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my. Yeah, my, I wrote that one. That's so cool. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite Voyager episodes, just because, like you said, it you know it has some very interesting alien characters that are truly alien, and at the same time, it is just. Uh, you know, hysterical, um, you know, with uh, Janeway having to play off as being Chaotica and everything. Oh, gosh, I, I really enjoyed that episode. So, yeah, yeah. and that robot. <laughs> I love that yes, robot. Yes, yes. <laughs> that robot's awesome. Mike's description in the script is it looks like a walking garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, I know uh, Trek author Jeff Lang is a huge robot fan. I'm I'm wondering if he has, uh, you know, a action figure of Satan's robot in his collection. 
Could be. Could be. Yeah, that's a great one. Well, okay, so with the uh, Excalbians, one of the most interesting things in there is the fact that, you know, they don't have this understanding of right and wrong. Um, and especially, you know, very much grounded in the 60s, even though we're having the, the cultural revolution happen, there's still very much that feeling of, of right and wrong. And Kirk o- often gives his, you know, Kirk speech about what's right. But I just I thought this was so interesting, you know, Kirk having to deal with this again and really that there is kind of a universal idea. Even Kirk thinks this in the book, you know, about there being evil and good and all of that. Um Talk about kind of writing that line of philosophy and ethics in this, you know, multicultural universe of, of Star Trek and, and trying to divine, okay, what could we boil down and say, well, this is good and this is evil when we have all of these myriad of races all around us? Yeah. Well, I mean, I figure that I mean, the Federation itself seems to be based on uh, something like the UN um, Human Rights uh articles of human rights and i figured that kurt probably would stick to those pretty pretty and you know and to the bill of rights from the american constitution as well i think those are his his touchstones that could mm-hmm. that could bring you know a diverse here we are in a diverse culture trying to bring it together as best we can the same thing with the, you know the federation is a is a melting pot writ large so i think that he he believes the the things you might see in the UN charter on human rights. That's, and, and I would, I kind of based, you know, what, what Kurt would say off of the, some of that. Well, and what was interesting, and as you expounded upon the Excalbians and just talk a little bit about creating that race and giving them that depth, how did you kind of come up with where they had come from? Well, I would, the thing that I, was trying to figure out how could they not know the difference between good and evil. And my my thought was that if they were complete solipsists, if they didn't believe the outside world really existed and that only they existed, that could be a, uh, an explanation for what they were willing to do to the Enterprise and their crew in that episode. Um, you know, they threatened the ship, and they would very well have destroyed it probably um, just for fun or just for the, the search for knowledge, as Yannick says <laughs> at the end of the episode. So um, I thought that they would be sort of a semi-differentiated group mind, and they all sort of thought that they were all that existed and that everything else was a plaything of the mind, including our characters, <laughs> you know, everyone. And, uh, and they, I tried to give them some, of, some comeuppance as well. Because Kirk doesn't really get get to give them the comeuppance they deserve at the end of the Savage Curtain, <laughs> I kind of wanted to punish him for doing that to those to our guys. And it was really interesting because you know you talked about their 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 genesis uh, as a race and and how they came into be and this whole idea that they're really the only ones um, there and um, you know they they have this ability to create. Uh, and they become to see themselves as, you know, basically godlike characters. And I thought it was really interesting. And, and what we kind of see in TOS specifically is that that absolute power really does corrupt, you know, these, mm-hmm. these, these races. You know, they, they begin to think of themselves as God and then they, they play that out. And 
how interesting that is in the TOS milieu because you know when we I, I feel like when we move towards um, TNG and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, uh, our attitudes are kind of changing on on that. But well, in, in a way, TOS, I mean, we're, is certainly a you know <laughs> isn't the isn't the the most upright of characters <laughs> for somebody that's pretty mm-hmm. all powerful. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, two. What was really interesting here with uh, the Excalbians is, you know, because they are seeing themselves as, you know, above everyone else. You know, they they don't really pay attention to anything around them. You know, they don't, and they don't really care about anything around them. And what I loved is that you you like you said you get they get their comeuppance. You know. Um, that feeling like nobody really has anything to, to truly teach them, you know, uh, you, you're going to kind of pay for that assumption. And I really like that they, they really get, they, they have to pay for what they, they've, um, they've kind of been plaguing on all of these different races that pass by their planet. Yeah. And then they play with the wrong race. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, they, and, and, uh, I mean, I don't know how much we would want to go into the plot, but we, they do assume some historical characters just like they do in the episode, which was a lot of fun to do. Well, yeah, that is really interesting. Um, you know, it's always fascinating, I think, in, in Star Trek when they when they use those characters. But talk about just uh, which characters you use, why you decided to use them, and, and all the research that kind of went in there for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted to use George Washington. Uh, because I wrote a novel about George Washington, and I know a lot about him, um, especially his younger years. He was, he was, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he's not that wooden guy on the dollar bill, you know, he's, he's, he was quite the action hero when he was 21 to out in the wilderness there. Um, he did some amazing things. Um, and I've always liked him and he's very flawed as a, as a person. He's incredibly neurotic when you start really looking into his life. Very much mm-hmm. a mother fixation problem, <laughs> but, uh, and he's this interesting guy. And so I wanted to, I wanted to sort of bring him back, and and I, I picked out people that I wanted to, and I wanted to give McCoy finally give him a girl that um, was right. worthy of him. Yep. So I, I searched for the best historical girl, the, the prettiest and smartest that he could ever have. <laughs> We hit upon the woman that that Voltaire said, what did he say about her? Um, A great man whose only fault was being a woman. That was Voltaire's take on on her. She was his (laughs) mistress for a time as well. And uh, she also translated Newton's Brancipia into French. Mm -hmm. Right. And she predicted the existence of ultraviolet and infrared light. So this was a smart woman. I'm talking about Emily Duchalet. Du Châtelet, um, the French thinker, uh, and courtesan, <laughs> so, and she was beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I thought that that was something that was really great to see. You know, um, Bones in, in in so many places, you know, is is always definitely playing. You know, third fiddle to Kirk and Spock, and and I really liked that he had this whole storyline, you know, he really got something interesting to do. And, you know, before Kirk in this book, he gets the girl, um, which I I loved seeing him kind of just kind of open up and, and really uh, let loose for bones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I always thought he deserved that, you know, his, 
And in some of the the original series episodes, his girl's always getting killed off. <laughs> yes, like asteroids are running <laughs> into their planets and things like that. So, so I want to give him something. And uh, and Kurt has a has an interesting relationship going on that that had mm-hmm. to be difficult to develop. That that couldn't be a you know Kurt smiles and she's she's his kind of relationship. So mm-hmm. I wanted to give Kirk something difficult to work on as well, um, instead of uh, instead of your standard uh, TOS uh, romance plot. Not that there, I mean, there's some good ones in there. Oh, definitely. Well, and I think that was one of the things that made it so interesting throughout the novel because I, I felt like you, you you did a great job of of giving us that mystery. Okay, is Kirk going to be able to kind of win this woman over? by the end of the the novel you know you left that very much a mystery throughout the entire book and i liked that i wasn't sure if it was ever going to progress that far you know um yeah i'm still not sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey that's great you know there you go it's it's up to the uh to the reader at that point to say whether or not it went any farther um yeah i love that and uh, because that got to me and it, it gives you an investment when you're reading um, because TOS is so formulaic sometimes. It, it's nice that you're shaking up the formula here. You know, you're making, you know, McCoy be the one who's who's the lady killer in this book and having Kirk be the one who's having to work really hard for it. <laughs> it's true. awesome. But I'm still <laughs> worshiping the formula in my, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love definitely. The formula, you know, the formula. You could also say it's great storytelling, you know, and it's always mm-hmm. going to have a certain, certain uh, a number of beats to it, et cetera. So, um, you know, I love uh, the original series. Don't get me wrong, but you know, you got to, you know, you got to try different things to make it interesting. And, and I wanted to give a takeaway that, that, like you said, the the reader could think about: could this relationship possibly work? You know, that's as you uh, as you finish yeah that's something that's so interesting about the story is because I, I think people come away from TOS kind of feeling like we understand or know Vulcans but if you only watch TOS you you know very little about this race mm-hmm. um, I think it's really through you know enterprise that we feel like we know more um, and the rest of the series until we got to Voyager stayed away from Vulcans so much of the time. It talked to me about exploring Vulcans because Kirk's main squeeze in the movie, um, the the one that he's uh, you know working with very closely and and not in in that way. People get your mind out of the gutter, but he's having <laughs> to work very closely within the book um, to deal with the problem of the Excalians, uh, as as well as everything else is Vulcan and she's also a very close friend of Spock and talk about exploring, you know, and, and kind of opening up what it means to be Vulcan. Well, I wanted to, um, she's also the one that's that she has a great deal of power in deciding the fate of everyone Mm -hmm. in the, uh, Mm -hmm. she's and Kirk's gotta, gotta obey her because she's a Federation, uh, representative which she chased at as well a bit, but she has, um, she's a protege of, uh, Spock's dad. And, but before that, she's not exactly friends with Spock. They're sort of, Spock was 
friends or or close with her twin brother mm-hmm. um, as as a, when they were young, and in fact they were sort of antagonists back then, and and it's something that she regrets um, as as a logical error, of course, not as a real regret. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but um, and and I wanted to one thing I needed to have her um, possibly unattached. Uh, romantically so there could be that possibility so i needed to come up with some way that that um Ponfar would not be come into play and so i i came up with something that i i hope will fly with with the cognoscenti that, that um vulcan twins don't don't bond in the same way the pair bond of the of the Ponfar of the uh the Vulcan's strange salmon-like uh, relationships with each other so that um, she could truly be unattached. And uh, so I did the, that with twins, and then I figured that they were very close to her brother. And, and when he became enamored with Spock in his mind, uh, Spock's mind, uh, there might have been a sort of logical jealousy there. And I wanted to, to bring that forward into the future. Right? Now they're meeting years later. She realizes she was mistaken about, um, you know, Spock being half human was not a detriment. It was perhaps even, a, you know, something good. And how is she going to deal with that being a Vulcan? Because you can't really, you can't feel sorry. <laughs> you can have regrets that you made uh, a logical error. Right. So how, how, how would they do that? How would Vulcans work out that sort of baggage from their childhood was, was interesting to me. And also, she works for his dad. So there's that. Yes. And and I made her, and and I needed to make her also somebody who was is who understood humans as well. She's not mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that she could have some sort of empathy for Kirk and and the others. So um, and she is also protege of Amanda Grayson as well, who's a close mm-hmm. friend of hers and a mentor as well. I really liked the the fact that you opened up um, Spock's family like that and, and made Amanda just as important in not only Spock's development, but also uh, Valak's development as well. And that just as much as she had to learn from Sarek, she had a lot to learn from Amanda. And I thought that was really, really nice to see because I feel like so many times, uh, you know, in Star Trek, except for really... A, the 2009 version Amanda is pushed to the sidelines a lot and yet you would think there would be something pretty spectacular about this woman if if you know Sarek of Vulcan decides to marry her yeah exactly and they're married and and one could even say that Sarek would not have been the great man that he became without her um that, that oh yeah they really seem like a team even in in the uh uh the Babel episode. What's the name of that episode? I can't remember. When they're when they're all going to the, the conference. Um, Journey to Babel. Yes. Yeah. So um, you know, she she certainly seems like just as his equal, and is there's something that that really works in that relationship. So how can a human and Vulcan have that sort of? And, and it seems romantic in its way. Um, mm-hmm. How can that happen? What is it that gels there? Um, and it's not explained in the episode where they're they put together in the original series. It's just presented as a fact. Um, and I kind of wanted to think: how could that happen? How could a human and the 
level can really get to the point where they might want to spend the rest of their lives together in such a way and mm-hmm. have kids. Writing in TOS is, especially when talking about the formula, um, you know, it's very much the Kirk, Spock, and then McCoy show, and then everybody else just kind of fills in. Um, and I felt like in this book, you really did a great job of naturally kind of working in every single character in the book and, and, and making it feel like, Oh, I, I, I'm not feeling like as, Oh, okay. He, he's feeling he has to, you know, put Sulu at the forefront here, check off here, Yahura here, just really having them work very naturally throughout the story. Kind of talk about that balance that as an author, you know, you have all these great characters and you're trying to find ways to service them that work best, you know, for you as the storyteller, but also for the character. Yeah, I mean, the way to think about it, the way I thought about it was, is that in, in many ways, the main character of of the original series is, is the Enterprise crew itself working together mm-hmm. so well, because they're all just extraordinary people that have, have come together. Nobody's not extraordinary in that crew. So um, they would all do extraordinary things and they get in the, and they have interests that are their interests. Um, Uhuru does communications. And so she would naturally be used to, uh, to check some uh, communication stuff that she needs to do. And she finds something in the, in the, mm-hmm. in my, in the book. And um, I wanted for once for Chekhov to, um, to be not the not the scapegoat, not the not the youngest guy around for once, because you know yeah. he's pretty extraordinary himself, and you know I wanted to give him a good uh, moment of mentorship with absolutely new red shirt. So uh, and that was really fun to to do to write, and um, I you know you just have to when you have a you got to fill up the book, so you need to have the yeah. characters do things. <laughs> I'll be Kirk and Spock. So, right. and, and it needs to all gel together. Of course, that's the main thing. It's got to come, come back together, and the the story has to tie up in, into uh, into a real story and not disparate uh, threads. So yeah, you know, you got to juggle all that. And I made outlines and worked them over and worked them over again. That's you know part of the the process. When you were coming up with uh, the historical figures that we would see. Um, you know, besides George Washington, how did you come to who we'd see? And, and um, did you ever think of adding, you know, uh, other characters from other time periods or other races or, uh, you know, as we had seen in the episode? Yeah. Um, yeah. I could have, you yeah, know, I could have I could have even added some people from uh, from from other Star Treks as well, which would have maybe mm-hmm. been fun. But the thing is, is that I figure that this particular, these guys are escapees from, from a particular episode that they were reenacting. Um, and, and they're all basically from pretty much the same time period because they were in a, in a reenactment that, um, you know, one of the plays the Excalibans like to put on. Mm-hmm. And and so they and I wanted to match somebody up to each of the characters as, of, of the main characters right. as well. So Kurt got Washington, Scotty got James Watt, um, et cetera, and Spot gets the, my favorite guy of all from the past. So. Ben Franklin, yeah, yes, yeah, 
Yeah, and it's I I don't know. It it just truthfully, it's just the guys I wanted to research. Guys, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. I always wanted to know more about. Like I knew I had heard and knew somewhere in the back of my mind that James Watt hadn't just invented the condenser the condenser on the steam engine, but uh, that he had invented carbon vapor. I was like, who is this? Oh guy? wow! So and he he invented a lot of other stuff too. Um, he was quite, and he, he wasn't, uh, he was an, a self-made man. He started out as an intro, as an instrument maker, um, in the university of Glasgow. He didn't, uh, you know, come from great wealth or anything like that. So, uh, you know, and he's Scottish. So. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, you had me going there because, you know, when him and Scotty are having this amazing scotch, I was super jealous because I'm a big Scotch fan myself. And uh, yeah, I did a little. Yeah. Uh, I said Glasgow. I think it was Edinburgh. But anyway, yeah, they. Uh, well, I wanted to. What was the best Scotch ever? You know, it was the first Scotch that ever existed. Um, that was really Scotch historically, and it wasn't ruined because it wasn't a thousand years old. Uh, it was just exactly the right age. <laughs> so. Yeah. That was awesome. So I did quite a lot of research on Scotch, and I really uh, <laughs> participated in that research, too. I have a friend who uh, who has quite a few of them, and we went through some of them, too. Well, that is the best kind of research right now, if you ask me. Exactly. <laughs> I'm researching. Leave me alone. That's right. Uh, just one more. Room. Just one more. <laughs> one more. One more datum I need to examine here. Yeah, well, it was it was fun, <laughs> and I love single malt scotch as well. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm a huge fan myself. So, tell me about kind of creating some of the other races that you did for the book. I mean, there are some shadowy races like the Haradrin and the La Harain. Uh You, you had the Edemi Urge. Just talk about creating these these races. And kind of where you, um, you know, it seemed like you were setting up some things too that you, you we could really see again. Yeah, I, I maybe would use that again. Um, I, I enjoyed the idea that um, that there was this um, rather horrible empire that existed about hour in our time frame um, out there that mysteriously disappeared and why um, nobody was quite sure of. Uh, and they might still be around. Uh, and they were slavers. They, they had slaves and they dealt in slaves. And when you have slavers, you would have um, a, a subspecies of humans here that deals with slave ships and such. But I'd spend them a, a sort of uh, parasitic species um, in their own, own right. That's the Larani. And, um, you know they're pretty. It's it's good to have some despicable villains. <laughs> There's not much mm-hmm. good to to say about those guys. They are they are slavers, and they deserve whatever happens to them. That so, um and, and it gave me a place to put a MacGuffin in as well, which is um a uh, something that they have on their ship that they don't quite know how to use, but that um that might be useful for our our guys, our people. Mm-hmm. And where did you come up with the idea for the Demiurge, which will be kind of like uh, the the final battle in the book and, and right. really the thing that uh, the crew has to overcome? Well, 
the thing is that the Escalbians are pretty much omnipotent. <laughs> and so what could mm-hmm. beat an Escalbian is what my, my, my task was there. What could they be afraid of? Um, so, uh, you know, that, and that's, and my thought was something that sucked them all dry of their mind. Um, and, uh, that was just, uh, was powerful, knew so much more than they did. And they, it, the, the Demiurge is as much above the Ascalbians as they are above us poor humans in mm-hmm. mentality. So, um, I needed something like that. And, um, and there's, there's, you know, we get a glimpse that there might be other things that are even scarier than the Demiurge, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, briefly in the, in the book as well. But I needed, a, I needed something that, that's, that's where it came from was the idea. What, what could the Excalbians possibly really be afraid of? Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to say too much more about it. <laughs> it'll give too much away. Right. It was, it was right. Fun. I, I liked I really liked the, uh, and, and it sort of, the other thing I thought about that, that came to me was um, from A Wrinkle in Time, um, where, you know, oh, where yeah, Meg is, yeah. is looking out and the stars seem mm-hmm. to be covered with this black, that's the Demiurge yes. to me. Yes, so. yeah. Yes, that, oh yeah, that's a great, yeah, I like that. That's really nice to know that that's kind of where it comes from. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's what I was visualizing, so... Not a nice thing. Oh no, not not at all. <laughs> what I wondered too uh, with the Excalbians and this question of kind of personhood and you know for them who they are in the universe has got to be one of the most difficult things, especially since they take on these forms. And you know, are they really their own person or are they just a copy and? That was a really interesting question that I just kind of wrestled with throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, who would have thought I could try to pull Philip K. Dick in, into a Star Trek? <laughs> yeah, but it's fun, you know. It's it's fun to, to because Kirk is that's the end of the Savage Curtain is um, is Kirk and Spock and McCoy just you know discussing whether that was really Lincoln. It really felt like Lincoln to Kirk, you know, and because it was mm-hmm. his absolute conception of Lincoln. But was it really Lincoln? How can, you know, it passed the Turing test, so shouldn't it, you know, it really was Lincoln in a way. So, um, you know, it, it's what's real and what's not. Um, if something is reconstructed, but it's exactly what your perception of it would be if it was real, then isn't it really real? I don't know. It's fun to play around. And that leads right into the whole idea, too, especially with the Excalbians of, you know, they do all these thought experiments and they play out these plays. But Mm -hmm. there's really no, uh, there's nothing that makes up for experience, real experience, you know, happening to you in the physical world. Um, Yeah. There's, you can't replace that. Yeah. And, 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 that's the thing about the Escalbians is that there's that as many thought ex, you know thought experiments are are in many ways useful, but in a lot of ways it, when you don't have anything you know you don't have any empirical evidence to back anything up, you could just think anything and you're just you, and you're caught in like infinite loops of of mm-hmm. um, of solipsism, and that's that, that's my thought. That's what happened to the 
to the, you know, they're very rational. They're extremely rational. They're, they're as logical as Vulcans, but they weren't confronted with, with having to, to, to go out, to, to fight, um, to, to live, to propagate because of the sort of creatures that they evolved from. And so they're just caught up in an endless circular thought, like a crazy person, you know, reenacting and to, to break out of that, they had this, it seemed to me that they need to become sort of less than they are so that they can find some way out so they can think straight, you know, so they can think anything that's not a, that have a thousand different uh, you know, tree limbs going off of it that leads them back into the, the same mess that they left from. I just, you know, confused, really, really smart people can be extremely confused people sometimes. And sometimes mm-hmm. the person that just, sees things clearly and maybe is not the smartest, you know, the sharpest knife in the, in the drawer is still the one that you need in a certain situation. And for them to break right. out of that, that trap, they, that mental trap, they've, they'd worked themselves into something like that would have to happen. I thought. Well, and in that too, I, I really liked that. It, I felt like it came down to, you know, the moment that you think, you know, it all is the moment you really don't know anything. You know, because you, you you really stop learning, you stop challenging yourself, and yes, exactly, um, the, yeah. Because if you're, yeah, if you're, if it's just you and the universe is your creation, you really can't learn anything because it's all you. So I think it's necessary, even though many people have said solipsism is impossible to refute as a philosophy. Um, there's some famous, uh, I think Bertrand Russell talked to a woman who said, I didn't, solipsism, he, he quotes this somewhere, who said, solipsism is such a logically pure philosophy, I don't see why everyone is in a solipsist, which is a bit ironic because it would only be one person, everybody else would be robots. But, right. <laughs> so it, to, but it, it is almost impossible to refute it, but you can't, but it ends there. You know, philosophy and science and everything else would just end there. If you just have to have to go beyond it, um, maybe even have faith that there's a world out there mm-hmm. that, that you can know and that might teach you things that you didn't know before and that um, you're not everything and that some things are, are worth finding out about and you could even become a better person than you than you thought you were. So which I think is something we all might agree on. Well, and, and I think that's one of the things that really makes us Star Trek fans is is because, um, you know, that's kind of the premise of the show is to seek out what we don't know. And, um, you know, I always think back to there's a great episode of, of Doctor Who where um, the Tenth Doctor says that he's out there to find out what he doesn't know um, and to challenge his own beliefs um, and to be proven wrong even. Um, and I think that's, you know, to, to, to make sure that, uh, he could actually be on the right path, so to say, you know, he, mm-hmm. could, he could actually know what he knows. Um, and, um, yeah, you don't know what you don't know until you, you know what you didn't know. Um, and that's one of the best parts about Star Trek is that we say we don't know. So we're going to go out and find out. And, um. I think that's yeah. what keeps us coming back for yeah. the books and, and for the show. <laughs> very noble undertaking and bold. Well, and 
Oh yeah, definitely. Well, and it takes, because it takes courage, I think, to do that. Um, to say we don't know, we're, we're not sure that what we think is correct and we want to, we want to challenge that. So, um, yeah, I think it takes utmost courage to challenge one's own beliefs, especially even if they're their core beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, I think Kirk, uh, and, uh, and company do come back to some, some basic, I don't know if they're beliefs so much as, um, uh, you know, the things like don't mess with other people and let, you know, mm-hmm. the freedom matters. These things. I think these are things that, um, that are necessary for us to examine our other core beliefs. You know, you have to have mm-hmm. someone right. able to speak against your, whatever it is you think in order to, you know, put it to the test because everybody was forced to talk and think in the same way you would, you would never test it. So there, there are certain things mm-hmm. that arise out of that need to boldly go um, and find out things that, that are universals. And I think that's treating individuals as, as worthy is one of them, you know, and that, that and that speech should be free. And unless you're going to shout photon torpedo in a crowded theater, I guess. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, Tony, what else do you have that, um, you know, that you're working on that, um, that the listeners need to know about? And then, too, do you have um, any other uh, Star Trek works uh, in the fire? Uh, not at the moment, uh, but I'm certainly open to, to more. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I'm also an editor at Bain Books. And uh, I do podcasts there, which is really fun. I, I interview our writers there. That's something I do every every week. Um, it's called the oh, Bain cool. Free Radio awesome. Hour. Yeah, it's incredibly fun to being a writer to interview other writers. I feel like I I know some of the things to ask them that uh, that gets them gets them going. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of like, what kind of pencil do you write with, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I have what kind of pencil do you write that. with, Tony? Oh my God, I don't even know what a pencil <laughs> is. I know that's awesome. I can't imagine somebody actually asking that question anymore. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I have friends that write with pencils and and, and longhand. I just I don't. Um, but um, I even use Dragon Speech sometimes. The uh, oh wow, or whatever voice recognition software. I've I've done that. Before. Oh, that's really cool. It would be great if I could just think, think and uh, and write. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if my thoughts would be, but there's still the editing process. It wouldn't matter what. You know, yeah, you, can't just, you still uh, have to go through and edit. So I'm working yep. on uh, at the moment. Believe it or not, I'm working on high fantasy. That, okay. Uh, that uh, is incredibly fun because I've always, always wanted to write one, um, and it, it will be done this year and it'll come out uh, probably 2016 sometime okay that's the current project. any tidbits for the for the listeners of just kind of the the basic of what it's about well it's um it's a young adult novel i think in that it has young adult protagonists at the moment but I, you know i certainly think it's for adults as well and it's uh it's not an incredibly new idea, but but it's based on a what if. What if the Vikings had stayed when uh, they they got to know Scotia and established their uh, or Newfoundland and established their uh, 
their base there? And what if uh, they populated North America, encountered the Native Americans, um, and the East Coast was basically divided into little kingdoms and fiefdoms and earldoms and, oh, wow, and whatnot yeah. in, in medieval times stayed um, here and came here. And there's castles and keeps, um, you know, in places uh, like on the Potomac and you know, on, mm-hmm. on the, and my heroes are, are um, the, he, he, he starts out being, he's the third son. So he knows he's not even the spare to the air um, in a kingdom that, is the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, basically. Okay. And uh, and it's threatened because there's a, a really nasty... I, it, I created what I think is really fun uh, psychic vampire <laughs> that are threatening awesome. this. So, uh, awesome. it sounds It sounds like a mishmash of crazy stuff, but I'm trying to make it all work. I'm working desperately to make it all work right now. So... And it's that sounds fun. like a lot of fun, actually. It is. It is. <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, but, you know, I love that. I, yeah, it's it's so much different than you know. I have to create it from the ground up. Writing a Star Trek mm-hmm. novel is a lot like writing a poem in that there is um, a structure that you need to adhere to, or you're not writing a Star Trek mm-hmm. novel. You know? Right. And, and and that gives you a lot of freedom too because it gets you you know I can't do this I can't do that and so how am I gonna mm-hmm. do what I know I can do you know and make it interesting and it, and it really fires up your creativity um, in ways that you know it's like writing a sonic um, if you mm-hmm. having to make that rhyme happen makes you explore areas that you wouldn't have explored in your thought necessarily if you were just writing free right. verse or whatever. So I love writing Star Trek and Hulls. It's really fun as a writer That's of other really things. Cool. Yeah, I, it's just uh, it's it's and it's a great experience and being part of the whole the whole uh, community is is wonderful as well. Finally, you know, having that connection that that's really really strong. But I know uh, so many of my friends are, are you know like Greg Cox. It's mm-hmm. a great yep. Star Trek novel yep. writer and and my best friend Mike is you know long time. There are some Deep Space Nines that are classics as well. Um, to, so I got some Star Trek in my blood now, by God, among my friends. That's right. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I've, I, you know, I have to say that I have enjoyed both of the novels. I've, I've thought that they have been really well done. I've really, um, I, The Devil's Bargain was, in fact, um, uh, last week we were talking about books. Um, that were great Spock books and that was one that we mentioned because I really enjoyed what you did with Spock in that book and this one I think is such a fantastic ensemble piece Um, I I really enjoyed the fact that all the characters had something enjoyable and and interesting to do for them and I really I I would love to see a follow-up to this because I kind of want to know about some of those races that you created um, I'd love to see kind of Kirk have to go after those slavers. I think that would make for a, a great follow-up, Tony. Well, I like that idea. They need, they do deserve to be punished. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Rooted out. <laughs> at least the at least the readers can in in their mind make that you know take it forward and say this is what would you know you can, you can write your own sequel if if you like it enough. <laughs> 
that's what I mean. That's what it was. Was we're writing that sequel with Kirk, and whether or not he gets the Vulcan um, love interest, we can also do the same thing with uh, the aliens that Kirk will go after next. I love it. Yeah, I hope it's an earbud, like a song that keeps going on in your mind after you finish the book. That's my, that's my hope. That's <laughs> my intent. So you keep <laughs> thinking about it afterwards, and you feel like it, you were royally entertained. That's that's my ultimate Definitely. goal. With it, so. Well, um, before we let you go, where can everybody kind of find you online and kind of keep track of the things that will be coming out for you uh, in the next few years? Uh, well, TonyDaniel.com. Um, I am not the comic book artist Tony Daniel, by the way. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm the other one. Believe me, I, I people have made that mistake. I, sometimes I think I penciled Batman. But... Um, TonyDaniel.com, it's my Facebook page ultimately, and I just okay. uh, you know, keep a few announcements of things. I'm not a huge web guy. I have like three jobs, <laughs> writing Star Trek yeah. novels, writing regular novels, and, and being an editor. <laughs> it's like keeping up with the, a website is beyond me at this point. Mm-hmm. So I, just, I just use my Facebook page as, as uh, author page as that. But please check it out. And where can everybody find your uh, podcast there for Bain Books? Um, you can go to Bain.com, and uh, you can look at the pull-down, which is Bain Community, and the podcast is uh, it's one of the choices there. And we have, uh, you know, we have a lot, and there's some great writers. Um, we have many interviews with, for instance, David Weber, Eric Flint, um, and uh, just all sorts of writers, some really interesting uh, stuff. And I also interview cover artists. I have... And we have some, you know, we, we use the best in the business and we have some mm-hmm. great, uh, great conversations with, uh, you know, Bob Eggleton, uh, Steve Hickman, people that are just legendary cover artists as well. So um, awesome. I, I really like doing it. And it's a maw that must be fed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You probably understand. <laughs> That's awesome, Tony. <laughs> I do. I do. Doing three podcasts, I totally get it. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll hope that we'll have you back soon because you'll have a new Star Trek book. Um, but I really appreciate your time and getting to talk about Savage Trade. Well, thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Well, I am really glad that I got to bring you guys this uh, interview with Tony. Uh, It's so much fun uh, doing this show, getting to talk to the authors. There's just really nothing like it. Um, Having them on and kind of getting to pick their brains of what it's like to write a Star Trek novel is such a joy. But guys, it's not the only thing we've been talking about today here on Trek FM, Savage Trade. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity. And, and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's, that's, he would approve, Spock would approve. And, um, you know, he'd say, you humans, why do you feel you need to do this? But, but he would approve. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Usually you want to be able to capture it or 
isolate one, but you, you can't do that either because it just keeps, you know, so really does seem like a conundrum of, okay, how do we take this down? You know, this minefield, they are the triples of war. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the ready room. Riker's all pissed because he can't prop his leg up with no gravity. <laughs> he tries, though. He tries. He's trying. I can, I can picture it. He's Look got the momentum just, makes him somersault. Which really just makes yeah, him look spready. Going in circles. He's spinning. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary treks. Well, actually, it started out life as a comic book pitch. I originally came up with it to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The idea was it would be a one-year series that would run throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. The 602 Club. Sometimes that just works better because you can create and craft a, a story that's very compelling because you're not having to worry about what's happened other places. Okay, we have to make sure this is going to connect to this, and my guess is somehow Agent Carter is going to have something to do with uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later on, and maybe something that happens in Age Voltron. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You will find us wherever you get your podcast. Guys, if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It really does help us out greatly when listeners are trying to find the show as they search for iTunes, as do star ratings and reviews. And just so you know, the reason we say these things is because that over 80% of podcast listeners get their materials, their podcasts from Apple. And so when you do these things for us, it really does help the show. It makes us rise in the iTunes rankings. It makes us more visible to listeners. And so we get a wider listening audience, which is fantastic for the network. So we really appreciate your help in those things. If you're not an Apple user, guys, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o dot com slash trekfm, you will find all the current goals and milestone contribution levels with the great perks that we have for you. Um, you've got exclusive content, producer credits, seats on the content development team, and more. Guys, we really appreciate your support. We're a listener-supported network, so without you, we can't be doing this. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to contact us, just go to trek.fm slash contact. You can choose a show, select that there, write the message. It'll get sent straight to me. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can do that on the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. And then there's the listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference. Guys, that is the best way to get in touch with anybody here on the network. We love being in the Babel Conference, having some of the most fantastic conversations about Star Trek that you will find anywhere online. Just search the Babel Conference in the Facebook search field or 
make it easier on yourself. Go to the website, trek.fm, and click discussion on the menu bar. We'd also like to thank Will Wynn, who is on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn. And of course, he's on the Babel Conference. He's an associate producer for The Orb, Earl Grey, and Literary Treks. He's also Trek FM's content coordinator. If you have any ideas for future shows, just send him an email at will.win at trekfm, or you can tweet him as well. We'd like to thank Lisa Stevens and Kenneth Tripp for their support of the network and being associate producers here on Literary Treks. You can find Lisa on Twitter at Flip18. Guys, really appreciate you joining us. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively. Then, of course, I do The 602 Club where we talk about all things geeky that don't really have anything to do with Star Trek. Just pick a great topic each week and talk about that. It's so much fun. I hope you'll join me there. And then, of course, I'm on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. And Dan will be with me next week, so I hope you guys will be ready for that. Thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.